scripture reading this evening is going to be taken from John chapter 13. I'm going to read verses 31 through 35. John chapter 13, verse 31. And when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, you are a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This concludes the reading of God's word this evening. Our dear Heavenly Father, we come to you tonight, Lord, thanking you for loving us. Thank you for this passage of your word. We pray that you will work in each of our hearts too, Lord, that we might truly love one another, that it would be true when they say they'll know we are Christians by our love. Pray that you'll be with Ben tonight as he gives us your message. Give him your words to speak. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So over the past 300 years, we've seen, especially in the European and then in the American cultures, the challenge to the truthfulness and to the validity of the Christian faith. It used to be assumed within the culture, in the context of the culture, that the Bible was true. Most people held to that. And the burden of proof at the time was placed upon the skeptic. Now today we see the exact opposite pretty much going on. Our culture is mostly skeptical of the Bible and it has flipped. Most people are skeptical of the Bible and it's now the burden of proof has now been placed upon the Christian to prove that it's valid and that it's true. So over the past couple centuries, we've seen a new paradigm shift as to how we view reality, how we view knowledge, how we view morality. We've been told that we have evolved, that we were not created. We were told that God never really existed that we just assumed that he did. We just made him up. We're told that there are no moral absolutes, and what you do is fine just as long as you don't harm anybody else. We're also told that the Bible has many errors, but it's, it's a good collection of moral stories, but it's not to be taken too seriously. The resurrection of Christ, we have no way of proving that. We don't even know if Jesus truly ever existed. So thankfully, by God's grace, what we see rising up in the past couple hundred years as well is people in the church as a whole have stood up and answered these claims. This field of study is known as the field of apologetics. You could fill an entire library with all of the Christian resources that we have today answering these type of claims about archaeology, philosophy. We have creation science, the manuscript evidence, historical evidence. We have all of these fields of study that Christians have taken a deep look at and have answered the claims of the skeptics very successfully. We've been very blessed in this area. But one point that often gets overlooked 
And I think it's because growing up, maybe in our church environment, we've heard it so many different times, is what Jesus has already told us the best way to prove that we are his disciples. That the love, the presence, the power of God is real. And you don't need any degrees. You don't need to read a whole lot of books. People are at different levels and at different stages in their Christian walk can all express this one vital truth the same way. We find that in verse 35 of our text. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So the best evidence that we can give, the best evidence that we can use to demonstrate the validity and the truthfulness of the Christian faith is to love one another as Jesus has loved us. It's simple enough for everybody to understand. It's our greatest tool for evangelism. It is the best evidence that we can show forth of the truthfulness of the Christian faith. So the context in our um, text this evening is the part of the book of John which is known as the Upper Room Discourse. Judas has been sent away. Jesus is going to be crucified the next day. He spends the next three chapters covering many important topics with his disciples. He has just got finished washing their feet, and with this act of servanthood and this act of humility, he is preparing his disciples for the greatest selfless act in human history, the act that will bring together all of those for whom it was intended, and that it is by the giving of himself as being a ransom for many. So Jesus is about to go to the cross, but we're seeing Jesus not focusing upon himself. Rather, his attention is on his disciples and what is going to take place after. So if we think through our Christian faith, the mark of a Christian, how do we differentiate between, let's say, a regular civilian and a police officer? What are the things that we notice? How do we know somebody's a police officer and somebody's not? And the obvious answer is it's the uniform, it's the gun on their hip, the car they drive, the badge on their chest. Likewise, how do we differentiate between a believer and an unbeliever? Answer, by the commandment that Jesus gave us in verse 34, to love one another as I have loved you. Now there's a great emphasis today in our culture on the word love. Our culture has hijacked this word and has defined it its own way. It is often viewed as being equal in all directions, meaning there's no wrong way of doing it. Just as long as you love someone, everything is okay after that. And they take this definition of love, and we really see it applied to marriage, and we also see it applied to sex. Just as long as we love someone, it's okay. We hear the phrase, Love wins. This is an incorrect view of what love is. The world defines love mostly as an emotional feeling or an attachment, but it has no moral absolute basis. It's subjective, based upon however the person wants to define it at the moment. But God's love isn't defined this way. It's grounded in his character. It's described to us in scripture, and it is laid out for us in the Ten Commandments. This is the basis upon which we define love. And I don't think there's a word today that's more abused than this. But we have to keep it in its proper context. How has God described it? 
how has God demonstrated it? This is how we pursue the love of Christ. Since Jesus gives us this command to love, we have the choice to disobey. Obedience is required on our behalf. Our way of identifying ourselves as Christians is to love one another as Christ has loved us. This is our badge. We identify the police officer by his badge. How is somebody to identify us as a true believer in Christ? By how much we show forth his love. Loving one another is not a guarantee. Just because we're born again does not mean this is going to come natural. Just because we are saved does not mean we're always going to be identified as a Christian. Just because we belong to Christ does not always mean we act like him. We wear the badge of Christ if we obey this commandment. This is the true mark of the believer. As a true and secure believer in Christ, we are still capable of denying him by our lack of love. So we see that all men bear the image of God. All men are our neighbors. And we are to love everybody as ourself. This is the main point of the account of Jesus's, Jesus's account of the Good Samaritan. Since all people are created in God's image, all people are to be loved at all cost. Galatians 6.10 confirms this. It says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. We must be consciously aware of this at all times. Otherwise, our sinful nature will cause us to drift away from this precept. This idea does not come naturally. It comes over time through sanctification. At times, amongst believers, within the church walls, we might have disputes over specific nuances of doctrine. Different Bible translations, which one's the best? Do we sing hymns only? Do we sing psalms only? Do we use instruments, modes of baptism? These things are important, and they're very worth our discussion. We may even separate into different denominations. But the most important thing we can do during this time is to remain unified in love in spite of our differences. How will the world looking at us from the outside view us if we have all of this internal fighting and this lack of love? The world will see our conflict, they'll see our infighting, they'll see our backstabbing, and conclude that we are not true believers. That's the conclusion they're going to come to. Now there tends to be even more division amongst the believer and the unbeliever. Now it's true that the Bible portrays these two categories, those who have saving faith and those who do not. These are important distinctions, but we err when we take an exclusive attitude, thinking we are better or that we're superior, and those who are outside are not worthy of our attention or not worthy of our time, that they're the sinners. They're the ones ruining society. Let's just stay within our walls. Let's not engage them. That is a serious error. Both the believer and the unbeliever are created in God's image. Both have value. When we start to develop this us versus them mentality, we greatly hinder our Christian witness. We tend to retreat from the culture. We get hostile. Those people who get hostile towards us towards the Christian faith, we tend to lash back the same way. Rather than engaging it in love 
compassion and understanding, realizing there was a point in our life when we did not believe as well. We turn a cold shoulder to the world, hoping for their judgment, rather than praying for their eternal security. So when we decide to withhold the love of Christ to those outside the Christian community, we are in violation of the second greatest commandment to love our neighbor as ourselves. All people, including unbelievers, are included here. If we forget to recognize this, we have sinned. We have taken off our Christian badge. We have failed to demonstrate the love of Christ to the world, and they have no reason to believe that we are true and genuine Christians in our faith. 1 Thessalonians 3.12 states, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you. So the church is to demonstrate the love of Christ in the midst of this dying culture, not just inside our sanctuary or our four walls. When the culture looks at the church as a whole, what does it see? Do they see love and unity among the people? Do they see the same kind of love demonstrated to all, not just the people within the churches? Do they see consistency in what we preach and what we do? If the world looks at the visible church and does not see the love of Christ being demonstrated from both within and without, Jesus says they have the right to conclude that we're truly not his disciples. So if we're looking at evidence, the field of apologetics, a very great field, if we look at it and we want the best evidence to communicate the reality, the truth of the Christian gospel, it's to love the dying culture around us like Christ loved us that we actually care genuinely. Not that we're just pushing doctrine, but the whole person, the whole matter of their life. Building that relationship, building that bridge, the doctrine, all of that will come, but to develop key personal relationships with those outside of our Christian walls. Bringing it a little bit more closer to our hearts. So why don't we love? What is it that hinders us from doing this? Why is it that we have to be consciously aware of this at all times? First of all, it's our hardness of heart. We may be born again, but we're still conformed to this world. We lack the understanding of Christ's selfless love. We don't confess this to the Lord and ask him for the ability to grow. We just kind of, we have our areas that we really like to study. We have our areas that we really like to pray about, but there's certain things in our heart, certain dark places in our heart that don't open up to the Lord and it remains hardened. Second, we feel bitter towards others. This bitterness that we show towards other people, it gives us power. It satisfies our desire for revenge and justice. If I can get back at this person, this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to turn a cold shoulder to that person and be bitter. We're too prideful to accept an apology so we hang on to what somebody has done. Third, we lack the sensitivity for others. We simply don't care about other people's suffering. We don't care about the eternal destiny of our neighbor and their need to repent. It just it doesn't bother us. We show no sympathy for those on the outside, and we just truly just want to be left alone. We don't want to be bothered. Fourth, we're afraid to love. 
Loving makes us vulnerable. Making ourselves vulnerable may open up the door for criticism and attacks. We might get laughed at. Somebody might come up and say, why are you talking to this person? Don't you know what this person has done in the past? They're going to do it to you too. We feel that our reputation of being this higher up person is going to be limited if we're seen associating with other type of people. We're afraid that we're going to be taken advantage of. Well, if we're going to help somebody, we're not going to get repaid back. We might even be used. He might just be using us. She might just be using us for our goods and services. We have to, we have to protect ourselves and make sure we're not hurt. Being hurt, we give our heart and soul to something that turns nothing in return. We've tried it in the past. We've been burnt. That memory still haunts us, and we don't have the courage to face that and return back to the commandment that Christ has set forth. Fifth, we're self-centered, selfish, and we only think about ourselves with our money, our free time, our recreation, with our hobbies. We spend all of our time for ourselves, which fits right in the age in which we live. See, that selfish attitude, it's not hard to mask that. Most people are doing it. It's accepted. Nobody really calls us out in the world, so it's easy to bring that into the church as well. Self-obsession, self-interest, the list goes on on all the different types of self we can list. So the truth of the matter is, we do not love simply because we do not want to. That's pretty much what it comes down to. Our lack of love is because we simply don't want to love back. Question is, was Jesus ever mocked? Was Jesus ever taken advantage of? Was he ever laughed at? Was his reputation ever ruined? Was his life ever put in danger? Did Jesus ever give and not get repaid back? All of these answers are yes. And at the same time, he still loved you. That didn't change. So the question is, this evening, does this bother us? Does this cause us to become a little bit uneasy? Are things appearing to us in our minds that areas that we really can work on, maybe the Spirit's stirring up our heart a little bit, the hardness of our heart showing us where we can improve and grow in our sanctification in this area. This morning, Dr. Tim quoted C.S. Lewis. I have a quote from him as well. It says, To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in a casket or a coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it still will change. It will not be broken. Rather, it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. Now, I read that several times. Very powerful quote. Very convicting. This is a very sobering reminder of our need to love one another and how easy it is to suppress that, to ignore this commandment, and to continue on in our hardness of heart. So the responsibility of the believer, the Christian has a double task. First, he is to demonstrate God's holiness. Second, he is to demonstrate 
God's love. By showing forth the love of Christ, we are proving his, his existence. Reproving that he is real, that he's at work today, that he does love and that he does care. Not only that, we're demonstrating to the world what God is like. We as Christians have been given the task of being a visible witness, a visible representation of who God is. If the world does not see this, this down-to-earth practical love that Christ has commanded, it will not believe that Christ has been sent by the Father. Being able to recite the correct answers, having the question answered at the split second it's asked, is a very good task, but it's not enough. Head knowledge and textbooks are only half of the battle. Loving our neighbor and Christian apologetics have to go side by side, hand in hand. If we neglect the love aspect, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians, it's like a tinging symbol. There's no substance to it. So the best way of showing that the world, showing to the world that Jesus has been sent by the Father is to love. Now it's easy to hate your enemy. It's easy to hold on to a lifelong grudge. It's easy to isolate yourself from everyone and just live alone. It's easy to put up a wall so you don't get hurt, to never trust anybody ever again, or to serve your own interests. The world does this all the time. The problem is it still remains broken. We've got to be conformed from the world, not conformed to the world. So how are we to love? Jesus says, just as I have loved you. Christ loved us better than he loved himself. Now think about that for a second. He loved us to the point where he gave himself up for us. Jesus was about to be betrayed by his, one of his closest disciples, Peter. Did he give up on Peter? No. He knew what was coming. He knew that he predicted the betrayal. But he didn't give up on him. Jesus was about to be scourged, carried to the cross. He was about to be crucified. Yet his attention and his care, if we read John 13 through 16, is still on his disciples. I remember I would make rounds early morning for pre-surgery visits when I was chaplain at the hospital. And people from anywhere of having a hip replacement or a knee replacement or open heart surgery are laying in the bed waiting for the nurse to come and wheel them up to surgery. It's a very intense moment. Most people requested prayer even if they weren't Christians. Their minds were on so many different things, the things that could go right, the things that could go wrong, the rehab. At that moment, pretty much all that was in the room was their spouse, <coughs> and they really didn't want to be bothered by anybody else. And we can understand why. Those are in very intense times. But much more. Christ was about to go to the cross, and he still turns around and pours his heart out for his disciples in spite of what he's about to face. As a Christian, our lack of love is due directly to one thing. Now, if we ask ourselves, what do we as Christians have that the world doesn't? What does the Christian have that the world doesn't? And that's the presence of the Holy Spirit indwelling in our hearts. As a Christian, our lack of love is due, due directly to our lack of fellowship and our lack of our communion with God. Rather than choosing to delight ourselves in the Lord, we choose to delight ourselves into our own sinful interests. A selfish person can't be faithful to anybody but themselves. 
They're only interested in their own opinions, their own hobbies, their own self-interests, what they can get out of people rather than what they can give to people. And as a result, <clears throat> the presence of sin abundantly remains on their heart. Even as a Christian, we can fall under this category. We cannot start to conform to God's image until we start to become displeased with our own selves, with our own sin, and with our own selfishness. Once we realize the depravity, once we realize the emptiness and the hopelessness of our sin, it will create a desire within us that we want to be filled more and more with the love of Christ. And as we're filled more and more with the love of Christ, we're conformed to his image, and loving becomes more natural, more natural, more natural. <clears throat> and as our personality is changing, and as the way we interact with people change, as our social skills develop and our emotional sensitivities rise up, the reality of the gospel can be lived out through our Christian witness. Calvin said this, Man is never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of his lowly state until he has compared himself with God's majesty. The reason we have a hard heart is because we're not gazing into the face of the Lord enough. We're not in his word enough. We're not in fellowship enough. We're not in prayer enough. We're pursuing our own selfish interests, and we're taking the time for us <coughs> rather than for the Lord. And this is the key to this. Christ is our example. This is what is needed to break us of our spiritual pride and to humble us. Love insists on breaking through these walls of self-trust, self-centeredness, pride, and fear. We must first recognize our own depravity, and this can only be done by gazing into the character of God. So without Christ as our standard, we will always view ourselves better than the person that we're sitting next to. We will always seek our own self-interests, our own self-goals and our hobbies. We will seek to be left alone and not bothered. Is this the type of behavior that the world sees when it looks into the church? If so, we have not demonstrated the love of Christ as we should. And don't be surprised if the world doesn't take us seriously. Now we have to be careful here <clears throat> because the world has many, many incorrect views about the church. They mock and ridicule the church all the time. We are never to listen to the world and use their criticism as valid. But Christ has given them the right to make a judgment on the church based upon how much love we demonstrate towards one another and to the world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your sobering words of truth this evening in the Upper Room Discourse. Lord, we hear the commandment to love so many times that it doesn't even sometimes affect us anymore. And we pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit breaks through that in our hearts, in our minds. Lord, to sober us up to the reality <clears throat> that there is a dying world that is lost, that there is a dying world that needs your gospel, and that you have commanded to take this out to them. Lord, there are a lot of criticisms, there are a lot of things that the world is throwing at the church today, and we could spend years and years trying to refute. But Lord, you have given us the best way in showing forth the reality of you, the love of you, <clears throat> and the compassion you have towards sinners. 
And that's to demonstrate this love to all. So Lord, I just pray this evening, we take your words to heart. And we realize, Lord, in the week to come, help us be consciously aware, moment by moment, of our thoughts, of our words, and our actions. Lord, that we can be the best living witness of the reality of your transforming love, of your grace and your mercy. Lord, that we can honor and glorify you in absolutely everything that we do. Lord, to give you the grace, to give you the praise, and to give you the worship. Lord, thank you for changing our hearts, and let us be this witness to the dying worlds that's lost. Asking all of this, Lord, in your son's name, amen.